Eir Tanuyap, Kuiget Yuans Kuiensna. Hi, everybody. My name is Kuiget Yuans. I'm a member of the Squamish Nation and the Yagalanis Clan of the Haida Nation. You're listening to Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. We live, work, play, and broadcast from the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. You are listening to CFRO Community Radio Station. The upcoming show, Conscious Living Radio, is a program that explores frontiers of consciousness, spirituality, personal growth, emerging paradigms in psychology, health, science, and innovative philosophies that reflect commitment to the advancement of individual, social, and global transformation. everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Tasha Sims. Mark Caron's here. I'm going to speak for him because he's somewhere where the sound is absolutely abysmal and uh, lots of background noise, right, Mark? But you can nod. You're on camera. Um, you're listening to Conscious Living Radio 100.5 FM, CFRO Radio Co-op. And we acknowledge we're on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Today's show, super important Super exciting. We're discussing a film called Clabona Keepers, directed by Tamo Campos and J- Jasper Snow Rosen. It's produced by Rhoda Kwok. Clabona Keepers is an intimate portrait of the dynamic Indigenous community that succeeded in protecting the remote sacred headwaters known as the Clabona in Northwest British Columbia from industrial activities. Spanning 15 years of matriarchal-led resistance, the film follows a small group of determined elders in the village of Iskit as they heal from the wounds of colonization and pushback against law enforcement, the government, and some of the world's largest multinational companies. Filmmaker Tamo Campos joins us today. He's one of the directors. Um, his other films include Rude Sue, The Radicals, The Last Stand for Leeloo, and over 50 shorts dedicated to combining social impact with his activism and filmmaking. His ventures have a strong outreach focus that collaborates deeply with the participants in all his films. Welcome to the show. Awesome, Tash. Thanks so much for having me. So what a powerful film I, I, and an important film. I hope everyone gets to see it, which actually they will be able to because it's going to be one of the hot docs that will be offered online free as well as opening up the human rights, 19th annual human rights watch Canada festival. Pretty exciting. Um, I mean, it covers everything, the whole focus on Indigenous land rights, healing, illuminating what's important and why um, in standing up for future generations. What was your intention? How, how was it? How did it come about for you to make this film? Yeah, for sure. That's definitely not a short story because uh, we never had an intention to make a film up in Iskit. And that's kind of the truth of the matter. In fact, like, 
We were, I guess I kind of have to backtrack a bit to tell the story of how the film began, because I think it really sets the context for what this film came out of and just the, the relationships that are really the foundation of this film. Uh, so in 2013, a bunch of friends and I, we were traveling up northern BC in this school bus that ran on waste cooking oil. And we were working on the first film we ever did, which was called Northern Greece, which was exploring kind of the impact, social impacts of oil and gas extraction, as well as using snowboarding, surfing, skateboarding to reach youth. And we were driving up that 37 highway, that remote highway that goes up into Taltan territory on our way to Fort Nelson, because we had some school presentations there. And uh, I remember we stopped in at the Iskit gas bar uh, for ice cream because it was a hot summer day. And there was a woman named Ace Knoll there working the tail. And she said, hey, have you guys heard of the Sacred Headwaters Music Fest? It's going on right now. And, you know, you're, you're a couple of long haired hippies in a bus. You're going to check out. A music <laughs> <fest>. <laughs> and so we popped into this music fest that um, the community had been organizing to kind of celebrate that part of the territory, the Sacred Headwaters area, the Kibana area. And we ended up just hanging out at the music fest for three days, listening to country music, which at the time was not my favorite music, but I've learned to love it through my time up in Iskit and just like connecting with the community. And, and it was on one of the last days, I think, right as we were about to head out, um, Peter, who's in the film, and Oscar both came up to me and they said, hey, our grandmothers are trying to go kick out a coal mining company in the headwaters of the Skeena River. Um, and we're wondering, we know you guys have cameras up in that bus. We're wondering if you can come support for a day or two. Well, seven and a half weeks later, we were still there uh, mm-hmm. in a remote part of the territory in a camp called Beauty Camp, uh, where they were fighting this open pit coal mine. And we just saw this group of families take on the RCMP, take on this coal mining company, and just it blew us away, the dedication to that place, the sacrifices that people were making. And it truly changed our lives to see this group of grandmothers kick out what was uh, Fortune Minerals at the time. And, uh, you know, seven and a half weeks on a blockade, you develop some pretty strong relationships and friendships, especially when you're being served delicious moose meals and stuff like that. And And I just kept going back because I guess I fell in love with the people there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then a few years after going back, we had been doing just a lot of short video work with the elders, like getting getting kind of footage of their blockades out to the news so people could know what was happening. Also working with some of the youth there. And a lot of people, like a lot of the elders were saying, it's so nice that you're working on these like shorter pieces for the news, but it's always like 30 seconds a minute. You know, the story is so short because of what the news wants to cover. And it'd be cool if you told a longer format story. And we felt really honored to do it. And, you know, we took some time to think about if we could pull this off, me and my best friend Jasper. And and we decided to do it under kind of two conditions. And one was that, like, we collaborate with the story because we knew, you know, the fight had been going on a lot longer than we had been coming to Iskit. And additionally, we wanted to do it as a gift for the community uh, because of all they had done and all they had taught us over the years. And what we thought was going to take one winter of working on this film turned into seven and a half years later, the wow. film launched, um, yeah, this coming week. And how did you get your funding? Uh, it's actually not funded. So we've, we've volunteered all our time to make this film. Uh, there was a point of it where we had to bring in like skills that we don't have, like an animator and a color colorist. And we were able to get some just like finishing funds. Uh, from different groups like um, the NFB and, and, and Lush, but all very like small amounts just yeah. to be able to make the movie happen. Right. Um, so it really was just like a, 
uh, labor of love, you could yeah. say. And it, didn't, yeah. it felt like it felt important for us to do that. Like a lot of people kept saying, oh, you could like, you should like make money off making this film. You're putting in so much time, but that kind of negates the labor that people put in to fight for that place. Like 15 right. years of fighting for the Klopan area. And so right. what is it like, what is, what would our role be in making money off that story? And it didn't feel right. And right. Uh, to this, and that's why it was important for us to like, kind of just put in that labor. And also, you know, in some ways it's like a form of reparations uh, for being on stolen indigenous land and supporting this story to be told. Um, and of note with this film, what is kind of exciting is like, you know, you can say the film's a gift, but then what if we still own it? That's kind of problematic. So we actually structured it. So the main elders in the film actually own the IP of the film. And right. last week in Iskit, we decided, uh, they, they decided that all proceeds from the film will be going towards youth and elder programs up in the Klobana area. So it's, it's very wow. to see that happen. That is so moving. I mean, you can feel the heart in the film, but hearing what you're saying now and being, actually, I am, uh, I don't want to start crying, but it's, it's so rare to see integrity in this, in the film business, right? And it is a business and it does parallel very much what's going on there in terms of corporations, profit over integrity, over rights, over um, just heart, as simple as that in relationships. So thank you for what you did and are doing and uh, it's moving. I hope, you know, when, we're sort of this is the end of the show I feel like I'm wrapping it up here but wow and I hope people feel this in Toronto when it opens at the festival and it wakes people up to all do something um because it is important it's so important okay let's dive in a little bit more before I get all so yeah. funny I don't usually get emotional <laughs> at the beginning but well, that was beautiful thank you it's really kind I really appreciate those words and, and it's so true you know like for sure, as like filmmakers, we may not be like extracting the land, but in many ways, we come from a very extractive industry and it's the yeah. extraction of stories and it's yeah. benefiting of these stories. And even how do you decolonize the language around that? Like these aren't subjects we're working with. These are like people with lived experience and expertise on surviving the traumas of colonization and yet still resisting these systems. And so um, it's really important. It felt with this film specifically um to really like embody a different reciprocal way of making movies and so we're, we're, yeah we're trying our best and let's illuminate this area because i know the miners call it the golden triangle right so tell us why that is and and perhaps a bit of the um history the understanding of the sacred headwaters yeah, for sure. I mean, this is all up in Taltan territory, with it, which is up in northwestern uh, BC. And it's an area that is, you know, it's incredibly vast landscapes, like huge bodies of fresh water and caribou and moose and more grizzly bears than people, I think was the quote that uh, the Taltan Nation Central Council president recently said. And uh, But it's also a place where there's a lot of copper and gold in the mine, uh, in the ground. And there's been like a long history of, of mineral exploration in that area. And, you know, the community is, it's a very divisive issue in the community. There also is mines that date back quite a few decades in the territory but there are certain areas that are just too sacred to put mines and that's kind of where this community drew the line was for the sacred headwaters um and that's what this film's really about and that's not to say it was easy fighting for the sacred headwaters you know this a lot of the times a lot of these grandmothers that were standing up sometimes they were standing up to their own grandkids 
who wanted their jobs there. And, right. and that's pretty understandable. Um, and so I think like one of the things that was kind of exciting about putting this film together was like when you have a victory like they have in like kicking out Royal Dutch Shell from their plans of coal bed methane, of kicking out Fortune Minerals, what would have been like one of the biggest anthracite coal project, open pit coal projects in BC, mm. you kind of go back to a small town and it's not like you can like celebrate because it's, it's tricky. You're navigating those relationships. Uh, um, whereas like, I feel like now that that fight has come to an end for that Clopan area, we can use this film to really celebrate the folks who did make the sacrifices for that area. Why didn't the media grab that? Or is it just my own ignorance? Because I mi- somehow I missed that. Is that the norm? Did media not give it the exposure it deserved, the success, the win? I think media covered the fight a lot more than success. Um, I actually think they covered it pretty well. Uh, there was some really good coverage that happened when they were fighting Shell in the early years, as well as when they were fighting Fortune Minerals in 2013. And there's actually some amazing like um like when we were up there uploading some of the videos in 2013 of what was happening like obviously it was pretty intimidating like you had the exploration company there you had tall tan beauty camp of like five six families there but then you had an rcmp detachment of like 20 rcmp cars two cop helicopters like 30 rcmp for a group of five small families standing up for their hunting camp And, you know, media played a huge role, I think, in actually protecting the people there just to get those stories out. They had a couple of videos on CBC that went really viral around community members standing up to the company, including um, the young boy, Caden Jaquesta, who speaks up to the CEO like you see in the film. Mm -hmm. And because of that, though, because getting the story out is only one part, people have to take action when they see the story. And one of the beautiful things that happened this summer is folks in Toronto rallied and actually took over the company offices uh, of Fortune Minerals that summer because they were moved by the media. And I think that's so important. Like we always think about like getting our story out, but that's only part of the pie. We also have to mobilize. We have to build those connections and really act in solidarity when we're moved by a story. I love that. In the film, there's a line, Mark and I were talking about it before we started, before you came on, um, talking, I think it says exactly, there's a difference between consultations and consent. That was like, because the mining companies were coming in and consulting, but somehow assuming that meant consent. Do you want us to just say more about that? Yeah, for sure. That was a wonderful line by Shadi and Klohops, two really inspiring good friends up in Iskit who have been doing some amazing work around language revitalization and standing up for the land over the years. And I think it's just like that wording is actually so important because that wording, um, consent, is actually part of the United Nations Declarations of Indigenous Peoples. And it's actually something a lot of Indigenous nations were fighting for to be a part of the UN. And Canada was one of the only few countries that actually fought against that to change the language to consultation. And so it's really important that like, although it's a small world, there's a huge difference in that wording. Um, And like in the film, what is Ashkari says, he says like consultation is says, just says, hey, I'm going to hit you. And then you punch someone in the face and they go, what the heck? You're like, well, I consulted you that I was going to hit you. And we actually have to move from a consultation-based system of deciding which energy projects should go ahead to a consensual one, but also like a collective sensual, uh, consensual one too. Like, what about future generations? Do they have a say in this? Um, and so I think that's really important to bring into the conversation as well. 
the film also talked about the unfairness of when you look at the injunctions that are given by the government that 90% are granted to corporations and only 19 to Indigenous people. Um, why do you think that is? Why this huge bias? Is, is it simply the obvious money or is there more to it? Is there racism in there as well? Some sort of a systemic racist piece? For sure. There's a lot of that. I mean, a big part of that is, though, that Canada was built on like the a system of extracting land and resources from yeah. indigenous communities. So no doubt we would have very systemic biases within the court systems, within our legal laws. And so that's why it's so important to see these, these legal systems right now, like uh, injunctions and see the role that they're playing. They're almost like a contemporary form of dispossession. And it's happening across Canada right now when it comes to resource extraction. And so that's one of the structures I feel like as settlers as organizers we really have to go after uh, because it's literally one of the systems that allows the RCMP legally to go in and move indigenous people off their lands and I know groups like the Yellowhead have done really good research around this and so it's worth like if you are interested in that kind of work following up on their work around injunctions because this isn't just something that's located in the sacred headwaters in tall Tantary and the Kumana injunctions are at play across Canada and are very much a colonial tool. Yeah. I mean, it's so clear that Aboriginal rights are not being upheld in so many areas. Do you want to just share a bit more about that in Canada? Yeah, for sure. Um, And it's tragic. Uh, It it truly is. And, and And that's why, you know, we're really excited actually to launch this film at the Human Rights Watch Film Festival. This is a human rights watch film. Like this is a human rights issue. Indigenous issues are human rights issues. And, you know, you think our when you look at bringing it back to that injunction system, they're valuing like tangible loss. And they're always talking about that in a financial standpoint, like how much money is the company going to lose? Mm-hmm. But what about like the, you know, what about the watershed? What about the animals that are there? What about the tourism industries downstream? What about the fisheries? What about the cultural significance and all these diverse ways in which human beings interact with the natural world and with each other are not implemented into this legal structure of who gets to go ahead and wreck the land. And so we really, when it's not built into our legal system, we have to embody it and we have to stand up when it's wrong. And that's what this story is so inspiring because this is groups of family. This is grandmother standing up for that. You know, this is standing up for it. And um, yeah, it's really. The the mother in the film that was also very um, horrific, really, where she went fishing with her children and fed the fish. And it's such a communal moment and then finds out that the fish is contaminated with mercury. Um, I mean, is it even possible? I don't know a lot about mining. Is it even possible to mine without these kinds of devastating consequences? I think one of the lines that I I really like have learned from up there because like I come from like my dad was a mine like involved with mining my my dad's side of the family is from Chile and so there's actually like a big copper mining side tell, of tell tell them who your dad is <laughs> <laughs> tell them my dad's not who you're thinking of you're thinking of my grandpa on my I mean your grandpa that's right <laughs> but tell them that too go ahead right. well I yeah I had very divergent families so in one side you have like the Suzuki side very environmental, very radical. And on the other side, I had a Chilean side, very traditional, very conservative. And it was really hard to navigate as a young person in that home, uh, especially with the cultural class between Latin, 
loud Latin and Japanese. <laughs> and so <laughs> I kind of always escaped in the mountains, but then I realized later in life, you know, these are like, these are real issues that affect a lot of people and people that I love. And that was important that I kind of transitioned into this organizing and activism and, and speaking out about some of these issues. But um, where I was going with that, I think before was just how, you know, like um, a lot of the conversation around mining, there's some pretty amazing ideas from the elders saying, why are we all going in right now? With, for all this copper at the same time like this place could you know a mine provides jobs like quite a few jobs for like 20 to 30 years why don't we do one mine at a time and then as that time goes by the technology will get better but there's no way places like the sacred headwaters can survive if we're feeding a global market of mining and that's the pace we're taking and that's what's unsustainable and it's not just in a place like Clapan. it's a place like the forestry here it's not that logging or mining is inherently destructive it is at the scale that we're doing it and when we're serving multinational interests and so when we break that structure I think is when we can truly start talking about solutions right that's good um I wonder if we can touch on too just the complete like what you just said there is a different way of looking at living right? Where the consideration and the understanding that everything is interconnected, everything is um, alive and sacred, that there's relationship to be created with them, which is a completely different approach than using something to benefit A, B, or C. I wonder if you could speak to the Indigenous perspective about this kind of connection. I mean, it goes so far beyond land rights. Is there anything you want to say about that? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to generalize about Indigenous perspectives because they're just as diverse as any other perspectives. I just mean the one around land and water and and nature. What I will share is a story of that some of the perspectives that have been gifted from some of the friendships up there and part of the reasons why I I feel like as much as this film is a gift to the families that fought for the Clapan, they've given me so much in stories and perspectives and ways of seeing the world. And so one of the first times we were up there, I remember we were, you know, we, I was telling that story of being up there for seven and a half weeks in our bus, supporting this blockade, doing the media. And I remember the elders would kind of like orchestrate this entire thing around the fire in the evening. They'd be like, okay, tomorrow we're going stick gambling down at their camp. Okay, tomorrow we're going to go serve an eviction notice, just these different actions that they were planning. And then I remember they were like, okay, we're going to go take over their drills. And I remember we were just like, me and my friends were like, well, that's a bit intense. And like, I don't know if we're at that level yet, you know, like, and uh, I'm as political as I am now. And I remember we were pretty nervous and we were hanging out in the bus going like, oh, this is pretty intimidating with all the police around here. And one of the elders noticed that I was, you know, nervous and stuff. And so he came into the bus. His name's August Brown, lives in Telegraph. And he could tell we were nervous. Oh, boys, like, don't be nervous. And we're like, yeah, but we're nervous. What are we going to tell our mothers, you know? (laughs) And and he goes, don't be nervous. Like, you know what? You're not Canadian. And we're just like, I don't, what do you mean by that? And he's like, come on, your grandpa's a biologist. You should know this by now that your body's up made up of up to, you know, 75% water. And you've been here, what, seven, eight weeks drinking from this watershed, more than flesh and bones, more than anything you've been told. You're the Klopan river here. You're the sacred headwaters. It's a part of you. And they can't take that away. And it was this like mind blowing experience hearing that. 
and realizing that, you know, like that to be human is not to like end at your fingertips, but it is literally to be the watersheds that keep you alive. It's literally to be the food that keeps you nourished. And it's to be sacred, as sacred as the land up there. And, it, you know, it's perspectives like that from folks like August or um, one of the other wonderful words that really shaped my life was interviewing this young boy. He's not 18 anymore, but his name's Robert Jaquesta. He's in the film. And I was, we were talking and he, and he said the line, we don't live in Iskit because of Iskit, because of the reserve. We live in Iskit because of the land around here. And if it wasn't for the land we wouldn't be who we are. And it's just that relationship that is radically different than the capitalist colonial connection to the land. And it's a gift for the world to start embracing that, to honor that, to celebrate that. And that's what we need to all be doing. Yeah, I love that. That was beautifully said. Thank you. Um, Another very powerful statement, I think in the film, they stole the children from the land. Now they steal the land from the children. I mean, it can't get any clearer. Why is it so difficult for people to understand that that's what's going on? From your perspective, why is that so difficult to get? Yeah, that's... I mean, that's so heavy today on the day of the one year anniversary of uh, uh, the burial findings. Mm-hmm. But it's a line that um, Rhoda came up with in the middle of the fortune fight, actually. Rhoda Kwok, who helped produce this film and, and uh, was a big part of the fight up there, her family. And it was, it was actually, a, it came out because at the time that they were planning on taking over these drills was at the, around the same time the province was apologizing for residential schools. And it was this powerful saying that she came up with around like, you can't talk about like forgiveness. You can't talk about reconciliation because the very reasons they were moving people off the land was to get the land in the first place. And they're still doing that today. Right. And that's in in the film, we did a bunch of archival research and I really appreciate folks like Laura uh, Cuthbert and Maya Wickler who were able to pull up archives um, from Victoria and other places And to pull out some of those documents that like, you know, the residential schools up in the Northwest, as well as the Indian day schools that operated in Iskit until the late 80s, like these things were, you know, the money was flowing through the Ministry of Mines. And so we have to like, when we think about who is responsible for residential schools, it's the church, you know, it is the government, but it's also these industries as well that were pushing for having people off these places because they wanted the minerals under it. And it's an important part of the conversation um, that we need to be having uh, around who is responsible and uh, Mm -hmm. for the tragedy uh, of residential schools. And do you see um, reconciliation as a national issue, as a Canadian issue, not just an Aboriginal one? Do you see it that way? Um, I think... I think reconciliation has become, it's obviously like a buzzword that the government has used. A lot of money has been put into it, but I think it has a long ways to go. I mean, you can't reconcile something where you still have control over something you stole. And And are still doing it. Exactly. And I always get back to like, um, like everything we learned in kindergarten, right? Like, you know, if you steal someone, something from someone, you not only have to say you're sorry, but you actually have to give it back too. So uh-huh. an apology would be giving that land back, giving back the, uh, the 
capacity to have the institutions that existed here, the political institutions, the like Mm -hmm. restorative justice institutions, the like governance that existed here before. And that's what Canada needs to make space for and needs to prioritize if there is going to be any true form of reconciliation. What about accountability? Like I, I could never understand why no one was following up let's say with the the neglect and the abuse of the the children and with the priests and the nuns, how come nobody's calling names? We're in a, you know, a movement where everybody else is getting canceled. Why is it not front and center and people, because there's, I I think a lot of people don't know how long um, the schools existed and think of it as something way in the past, but 96, there was still a school. So these people are still alive. Why do you think they're not being held accountable? I think because of racism because, and because they're in, they were in positions of power and there's always impunity to having power. And but that doesn't mean that we can't call for that. And we can't call for, you know, real accountability around these issues for those that made the decisions around it. We can't call for our government to start to move from reconciliation towards reparations, towards like... Um, yeah, there's just like it, it's 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 on all of us actually to call for more radical change around the way the government's doing reconciliation. Is there even a party that um, stands for that? I was thinking about this the other day going uh, uh, like who is there to vote for that would actually stand behind indigenous rights and reparation? Yeah. Is there? Yeah. I, I think that there's some parties that have made some like nice gestures and stuff, but it takes changing the value system. Like some of the work right. is always just waiting for the party to say the line. Yeah. It's actually about changing the values in our communities. It's about changing the values in our families and uh, the spaces that we navigate around that issue. Because um, it's not this issue of the past. I mean, there is trauma that is going to be generational from residential schools. Yeah. And what does the government do right now? They, you know, they're incarcerating Indigenous people at a rate far beyond any other demographic in society. And, and you know, that's this continued, um, yeah, it's this continued racism and continued, sorry, I get emotional about it, but yeah, it's just so frustrating. It and it, it takes a lot of us to navigate, like, who are we in community with and how do we um, share our passions around this issue and act in solidarity with some of the amazing organizations, indigenous organizations that are pulling for justice on this issue and supporting them. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, trauma, I mean, it doesn't stay buried. You know, everyone it seems to want to get, even the person who is traumatized, initially the response is to get away from it, to bury it. But it haunts you. It can't be buried. It haunts you. It impacts everything and clearly has and continues to here. Um, So we all know that sharing your story about it is just one of the very first steps to healing trauma. Are there other meaningful ways that we can create a safe kind of container um, to, to move towards this? Do you know what I mean? I mean, I think that like our people's individual like healing journeys and communities has to be set by them uh, it's about taking that weight and the continued pressure like while they're healing should we be sending in endless amounts of 
like exploration companies at a rate that is so unsustainable while folks are uh, are healing from day schools, from residential schools? Should we be still like taking kids into foster care programs away from their communities, away from instead of prioritizing um, community led models for keeping kids in their community? Um, I think about like how, you know, the intergenerational traumatic effects of just like from my own like mother's background side from the Japanese internment camps and how like difficult that was and how that gets passed on in the different generations and you know seeing it in my grandma and my mother and it and what it does it is in no way was that at the same scale of the residential schools by any means but it allows me to see how quickly people's rights can be taken away in Canada and it gives you a responsibility to speak out when it's happening And so not only do we have to speak out about the way Indigenous rights are trampled on, we have to speak out about Islamophobia that is rampant in Canada right now. And all these issues where human rights just get, you know, what Canada tramples on them. Yeah. And, you know, under a banner of polite, being polite, that's the part that's so slippery. Gas, it's almost gas, like gaslighting, right? Totally. yeah. 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 So what is, let's just look at what needs to be brought to the public's attention right now. What's the most pressing thing um, currently that needs to be looked at? I mean, obviously everything we've talked about, but is there something really specific that we need more awareness around? Ooh, there's a lot of issues, but I would say like in the context of this film, a pressing issue is definitely... um, you know, I hope that folks see the front lines a little differently. Obviously, in the media, a lot of Indigenous blockades get kind of sensationalized, and it shows them, you know, people standing up to uh, some proposed development or standing in the way of profits or uh, a resort or something like that. And I hope what this film does is challenges that idea that the story stops there. And it allows us to say, every time we see one of those Indigenous front lines, there's a backstory to it. There's like histories to that place. And I hope it forces us to um, kind of be uncomfortable and actually go step up and see what's happening in the territories that we live on. And when we see those front lines, we see them very differently and we find ways to support in our different ways. You know, as myself, like I'm a filmmaker. So this film was a way that I was using my skill set to support a front line that is really close to my heart. But we all have different skill sets. You know, there was there was the skill set of like, you know, that front line up there needed funding. Folks brought funding. There was line needed food. People cooked food. People brought clothes that was like needed for the, you know, the, when the weather got cold up there. People brought satellite systems down. There were so many different skill sets that it takes um, to organize campaigns to protect areas like this, to stand up for Indigenous rights. And, and I hope that um, this film inspires us to figure out what are the skills I have right now and, and how can I share that in support of Indigenous sovereignty and Indigenous communities standing up for their land. Mm-hmm. And, and it does start with a shift in attitude, first and foremost, from me to we, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Like, I remember people complaining about the traffic jam and indignant that that the streets were stopped in Vancouver around the pipeline. It's like, are you kidding me? 
<laughs> right? You're concerned about your 15 minutes that you're late or you have to go around. Like this is, people are laying down their lives, are willing to, to protect their land and rights. And this me-centric kind of society world that we live in, that shift in attitude has to happen across the board in so many areas. Um, what do you think? Let's just talk about being an ally, what that really means, as opposed to just giving lip service to it. Um, as you said, it's tapping into whatever skills you have. The, the one area I wonder what you think about is tourism. Um, I, I remember Mark and I had a guest on who was talking about um, indigenous tourism. And I think it was in South America but just how different it was when a person came and lived with a family and actually under, began to understand the culture from the inside. Um, is that something that you have heard of happening with the um, up in BC or anything else? Is there anything like that developing that you know about? Yeah, I mean, there's some amazing initiatives like in, on the note of tourism, but like Indigenous run tourism, I can think of like sea wolf adventures on the north island um um you know there's some amazing programs that go into guayhanas or um uh the kutsumatin uh so there is some amazing examples of like tourism at a pace that the local community wants and as well as like owned and operated by indigenous communities which i think is like a really important different economic model um i think when like like, I find, like, there's this whole, like, <laughs> conversation about allyship, and, and it, it's very important to have, it's so important to have, and we have to be, like, super critical of it, because allyship isn't just, like, a badge you get, and, like, a degree you get, and now I'm an ally, yeah. it doesn't yeah. look like that, and it, it takes, actually, like, it's a continual effort to change, not only, I would say, um, I guess, to always reevaluate your own actions, your own way of seeing the world, your own way of interacting with it, um, and also building deep relationships, which are so key to solidarity work with the communities you're working with and the issues that you're passionate about. And I always say when it comes to like, you know, shut up and listen. Like <laughs> It's like, you know, just like, you know, folks have been here for 10,000 years. Folks have, you know, been fighting the colonial system since Canada started. And so if we're going to have solutions to the colonial extractive state, it's going to come from folks who have been fighting it since day one. And so, you know, being open to listen, being open to um, taking um, leadership uh, from communities, from elders, um, and, and also not putting people in harm's way too when it comes to actions is really important as well you know making the same sacrifice that other folks make it's not fair to put indigenous people solely on the front lines because they're disproportionately more uh, more likely to face violence from the police and so what way can you use your privilege to step in there and potentially be in more risky situations supporting those front lines and I think that's important conversation mm -hmm. that we have to be having with our with our friends um you know who are settlers mm -hmm. And how's the, do you think, I know I'm, gen, it's a general question, but the younger generation, I want to just talk about for a, a bit, you were saying sometimes even within the community, there would be uh, a division of how they viewed things. Um, what do you think the struggle is? Is it, is it a struggle for identity that's going on for the younger generation? What's, what are your thoughts about all that? 
That's <laughs> uh, a huge can of worms. I mean, I wouldn't say it's segregated <laughs> to like each generation thinking differently. Um, I think, you know, there's some incredible young activists as well there. I actually think this actually happens in non-Indigenous communities as well, where you have like when you're in your 20s and 30s, like you're kind of trying to build your career, you're trying to make it, you're trying to like have enough money to support your family. And then, you know, in my case, this generation trying to get a house over your roof because of the housing crisis. And so all these factors play into you navigating a lot of, you know, capitalist institutions and structures and labor. Uh, But then there's that older generation when you're done and you're retired and you can say what you want and you can stand up and you'd only, you don't, you not only see it up there with the elders and the way they're standing up because they're not building their careers anymore. You know, they're not having to navigate mm-hmm. that. They can be radical, but you see it also in non-Indigenous societies. Think about the raging grannies. And you also find it a lot in the youngest generation as well, uh, you know, because they're not, they don't have that same pressure. Um, and a lot of them speaking out because, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of these environmental issues are most um, profoundly going to affect, uh, affect the next generation. And that's why you have some amazing young generation activists up in Iskid. But I mean, you look around the world, you look at all the young activists and sustainability and all these groups that are standing up and, and uh, are doing really inspiring work. And, and I always feel like every, you know, generation can kind of like take a movement only so far and the next generation pushes it like a little further. It's kind of that like long journey towards like seeing the world we want to see and I think that's what's so amazing when you think about some of the young generation that have come up with these slogans like you know land back which is like profound when you think about it. it's two lines but it it just slices into the issue yeah. there and you know that was started by young 20 year old indigenous women and and I think I'm incredibly inspired by the young generation coming up and, and the work they're going to be doing and carrying this forward with the, the fire that's in their hearts. Yeah. And in terms of, I think I was thinking also in terms of identity, because you're so right that you're, it's your teens that is, you know, when you're a little kid, you are codependent. Your very survival depends upon belonging to that unit, that family unit, whatever it is. And your adolescence is about saying, no, I'm not you, I'm me. And whatever journey that takes, right, where you actually have to separate on some level to, to discover who you are, and then you come back and go, okay, now I'm a full-fledged adult, here's who I am and what I stand for. So I think that's across the board, uh, just a psychological development. I I wonder, do you you see that happening in terms of um, the generations coming back to the language, back to wanting to embrace their roots and their heritage, and especially kids who, you know, a lot of kids left or or were taken, but grew up going, yeah, yeah, that's where I'm from, but not really connected. And I do think there is a movement as well back and to embrace those roots. Do do you see that? Oh, 100%. Like, I I can't say it enough. Like, one of the gifts that the community offered me was seeing young people um, just go at learning their language, learning the Taltan language, you know, uh, bringing back these um, cultural traditions and values and and stories that had been you know like had had genocide committed against them uh, and how inspiring that was and and it it was really interesting because one of the things that actually did in my own journey was like I had been pretty ashamed of being Japanese Canadian because I think just younger growing up in like an all-white school you get made fun of bringing 
I mean, now it's kind of funny to say because Japanese food is the biggest trend ever. (laughs) But I used to get made fun of, come home crying from bringing that type of food to my school. And in that way, I just like shunned it and ignored it and tried to pretend it didn't exist. And it wasn't until my time up in Iskit, seeing these young people push back after generations of, you know, colonization and like forced assimilation to bury those traditions and that language and those those cultural aspects and it was it inspired me to kind of go on my own journey to find you know what my roots are you know it inspired me and my sister to go spend last year in Japan to to rediscover our roots and be proud of who we were and that's you know that's been one of the greatest gifts that I would love you know to say thank you to the community and I think I think it's a big trend actually right now because there is this revitalization and this revival and resurgence of indigenous you know, languages of, of the youth. Um, and it's really important that non-Indigenous people not jump on that bandwagon and ap- appropriate any of it. I mean, you're seeing a lot of it with folks appropriating Indigenous identity uh, to access funds or to tell stories. And I actually think it's really important when we see that revitalization that it's actually a challenge for us to actually look back and say, well, what are our cultural values from where we came from and how do we bring those back? Cause you know, there were cultures around the world that have different values than this colonial capitalist logic that we have to be revitalizing. And it's not our role to be revitalizing indigenous cultures, but it's our role to be introspective and look back and revitalize ones from all parts of the world and where mm-hmm. we came from. And, and but you agree, uh, edu- ed- being educated about them so you understand what is being revitalized. You do. You're saying that's different, right? You're not saying back yeah. off and don't don't get involved at all, right? No, I think supporting right? it is really important. Yeah. Yeah, and and let's talk just for a sec about a, uh, appropriation because it, it it's a you know there's the obvious and then there's the more subtle. And I wonder if you can just give a couple of examples of things that you think are maybe still maybe happening that people I think I think people are nervous about getting involved because they're afraid they're going to get whacked, canceled, like they've done it wrong. I don't think it's out of wanting to appropriate. I actually don't think there's something they're missing and not understanding. It, can you support that? Can you illuminate that a little bit to help people understand the difference between supporting and appropriating? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a big one to tackle, but I, I feel. <laughs> um, how should I answer that? I I feel like appropriating is when you're like. I mean, of course, there's the obvious examples where you're benefiting financially from it, yeah, which is yeah. problematic. Yeah. Um, like, let a- me give you an example. Maybe you can comment on it because there are things that I've been involved with that then make me wonder, oh, maybe does that mean I'm not supposed to be like that kind of thinking? Right. And clearly, I don't want to offend anyone, but I've done like a sweat lodge. Is that I mean, I haven't led the sweat lodge. I've been invited to participate. Is that, do you see that as an area that we should not be getting involved in, that we should be just, is that what you mean? No, I don't think that's what I mean by appropriation, because I think what, um, I think there's like a lot of opportunity for cultural sharing and being involved when it's like invited, when there's like a relationship that exists. 
I think it's the idea of you see a lot of when I was saying some of the problematic factors, you have like folks who are claiming indigeneity to write books about indigenous stories. You know, they're right. claiming indigeneity to tell indigenous stories. And that's why like for myself making this film, it was really important to make that clear. Like I'm a non-indigenous person making a story about an indigenous struggle for the land. Right. And how I feel I honor that is by creating this like gift model and restructuring the way we built this film. Um, and not saying that's like, like not saying that's like a model across the board or anything, but that's just the way of navigating what I think is a really important delicate dance we have to be doing. But it's also one that is really important that we constantly be like reconstructing, being like, am I should I be benefiting from this story? You know, uh-huh. uh, how am I? How am I? Um, yeah, and I think a lot about when how we're designing the tour of this film too, right? Like. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that Rhoda and John couldn't be here because the technical difficulties of getting on Zoom and, and Rhoda getting ready for the trip. But it's like, should I be the one representing the story? Probably right. not, you know, today. Right. And, I'll, and it's something that like moving forwards, like especially with the screenings, it's making sure that folks from the community are there to share that story. Right. Uh, and be that voice. And yeah. Well, I know we only have a couple of more minutes, so let's talk about this event that's coming up because I know the community is going to be there. I think there's like 15 children, elders, and Chief Stacy LaForm. Is that right? In Toronto? So tell us about that, what this opening of the festival is going to be. Yeah, for sure. We're super excited. We had the launch in Iskit last week. That went really amazing. We had three screenings in Iskit um, and the screening at the Human Rights Watch. It's been a organizing feet for sure, uh, coordinating 15 <laughs> community. Um, Stacy LaForme is from the Mississauga, the new credit. So they'll be opening up the event, which we're excited for that welcoming. Uh, folks who are coming out, we have elders, Rita, uh, elder Bertha. Uh, we have Rhoda Kwok who helped produce the film, her sister Ramona. And we have a bunch of kids that actually grew up on the front lines, you know, like we have Caden who learned to walk in the shell blockade, who's going to be present at this event. And we're just really excited for folks to be celebrated at this event. uh, And also just for audiences to be able to interact directly with the, you know, the literally the families who helped fight for the sacred headwaters. Um, And I know there's some folks who weren't able to come because, you know, it's a long trip and stuff like that. And so the way we're setting it up, we're going to have like a videographer there that can capture messages from the audience that we can send directly nice. back to the community of Iskip. Um, so yeah, super excited. People and can that, that's May 26th in Toronto and our, uh, can, is the public welcome? Everybody can get tickets? Yeah, yeah. It's free ticketing too as well. And so it's May 26th at the Hot Dog Cinema, um, which is this Thursday. And then there's also a screening on Friday at the Patagonia Shop, which is also free in Toronto. And then May 28th, I believe, or the 30th till June 2nd, the film is actually streaming for free across yeah. Canada. And, and that's and that's the one everyone can get at. I mean, you got a long time. You just go online. Tickets are free. Um, hot dogs, hot dogs.ca. And I know Mark puts all the links after this interview in there as well. Um, so everyone can see the film, which I love any final words, any, anything from your heart to the listeners that you want to say, or a message to the world. Yeah. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I just thank you for taking the time to help share this story and get word out about this event. I really like, I'm excited to see what people think about this film 
as I said, it's been a real labor of love working on it for eight years, but it's been such an honor and a privilege to work with these stories and to navigate, you know, the relationships to all the different people who are in this film. And it really is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a love letter to this community and to the families who sacrifice so much for this beautiful part of this world and a really sacred part of this world. And I hope it inspires us to think about our own responsibilities. What responsibilities do we carry to our community, to the next generation growing up and to the watersheds that we live in? And so, yeah. yeah. And there's a website for more information for the, for the film and the, and the Clabona keepers. What is it just, do you know what it is off the top of your head? Yeah. People can check out clabonakeepers.com. Uh, and there, there's like screening information. There's a little background on the film. There's a way to actually don't. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> there's a way to support uh, the elders and youth um, on the land project on the website. And there's also just a screening request too, because uh, we're really hoping we can get this movie into your hands, uh, into people's hands who want to host the film in community. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us so much. Really appreciate it. Good luck with everything. Thank you for making the film. And if you ever want any other conversations that support you or the activism that you're involved in, please let us know. Love to have you. That's wonderful, Tash. It was so nice to meet you today. Yeah. See you again soon and take care, Mark. (laughs) Thanks, Tamil. Bye. Can. We don't even have enough money to compete 
barely have enough food to eat I'm five for my land and I won't back down We can't take it back next time around They make money off of our needs Our culture is the one that bleeds The animals won't recover from the mines of a crime then we're left with nothing left to die so here I am asking asking you why fight for the rights for the rights of our people fight for the rights for the rights of our people for our You have been listening to Conscious Living Radio. For free show downloads, additional information about our guests and topics, or details about upcoming programs, check us out at ConsciousLivingRadio.org.